Are you struggling to create engaging content for your B2B brand? Let Podcast Town help. Our expert services will help you develop a successful content marketing strategy, making your brand stand out and increase revenue. With our guidance, you'll create quality content that resonates with your audience and builds brand loyalty. Visit our website at podcasttown.net to learn more and to get started today. We help you launch, grow, and maximize. We help you launch, grow, and maximize. I'm more excited about achieving success than I am afraid of failure. What I'm afraid of more than anything, though, is stagnation and mediocrity. Not trying, not doing my best, and achieving results that are rolling okay and not really making an impact. Can I get it? Oh, yeah. What's up, Enterprisers? Welcome to the Enterprise Now podcast, where we educate, motivate, inspire, and transform business owners and entrepreneurs into success. That is what we do. We help folks launch, grow, and maximize. Paul Powers is a CEO, workaholic, and an accomplished serial entrepreneur. With his impressive education at prestigious universities in US and Europe, Paul was able to make most of it and was awarded Forbes 30 under 30 in 2018. He had strong ambition from an early age as he was inspired by Einstein, Newton, and other great scientists. With high life goals, Paul wants to leave a mark. We believe he will leave a mark on our enterprises and inspire them in this episode. All right, Paul, can I get an oh yeah? Oh yeah. First of all, Paul, let me say thank you so much for taking the time out to be with us. I know that you have a ton to do, so you taking the time out to be with the enterprisers is much appreciated. Happy to be here. Thanks. The second thing I'd like to do is to ask you to tell us about yourself. Now, when I say that, feel free to go all the way back to the day it all started, or you can start more current day. Tell us about yourself. I grew up on the west side of Cincinnati. I was homeschooled most of my life, which was, I'll skip through most of the story there, but ended up kind of being able to choose what I wanted to study and focus on, which was really neat because I got to really spend a lot of time on science and math. And I got to go to college for chemistry at the age of 12, which was really fun. I got to go to Harvard at 16, studying astrophysics and astronomy. And but at the same time, if you ask me anything about American literature, I have no idea what happened there. I skipped pretty much every English book I could because you know, the SAT test doesn't ask you what happened in them. They just asked you to do reading comprehension. So I thought that was no need. I went over to Switzerland and uh, learned German there from 16 to an exchange year and kind of realized that you know, my whole goal in life, by the way, from a very young age, I mean, as young as I can possibly remember, was that I had this really strong ambition to leave behind the biggest footprint I possibly can, point it in a good direction, right? Like I wanted to have a positive impact on the world and my heroes in life were... Einstein and Newton and people like that who discovered things that allowed other people to discover even greater things. And I thought, you know, hey, that's a great mission to have. And maybe something that worked in my favor was I didn't have my peers to look to. If you go to school at a young age, your idea of success is I'm going to be the most successful person in this class. If you're 
Home Alone, watching the History Channel. It's like, I want to be the most successful person in this room, which in this room, they're talking about Einstein and Newton. <laughs> maybe maybe that, that helped my perspective. But I realized when I went to Harvard, it's different now than it used to be. You really need grants to be able to study anything and to make any progress. So I thought I was a little bit disillusioned with that. I realized that a lot of people who were really making advancements were in Silicon Valley. These startups were making the real changes and, and really making technology move forward. So I kind of changed my perspective and thought, maybe I should go into business. Maybe I should start a tech company. And I was actually going to go to MIT, but I ended up deciding instead, because I want to do the business focus, to either go into business or law. And I thought, well, law is good because it'll help you with business as well and it gives you a different perspective. And for fun, while I was over in Switzerland, I applied to Germany to go to law school there. And I got into Heidelberg, which was kind of like the best law school in the country over there. It's really hard to get into. So I was excited about it. Studied law in Germany for a long time. I was over there both studying and then also working a little bit in law, running startups for in total, if you include Switzerland, for about 10 years. So I had to learn the language very, very, very quickly. My first law class, it was administrative law. And I asked the person next to me, obviously, this is in German. I asked what the word administrative means. And he said, it means that you're screwed. <laughs> so <I didn't. laughs> He's like, there's no way you're going to pass this. It was hard. It was really hard. The failover rate was really crazy high, and especially for foreigners. But I did make it, and I did pretty well. And But I knew I wasn't going to be a lawyer. I knew I wanted to be a, an entrepreneur of a tech company. That's what my mission was. So I was actually running a tech company while I was in law school. And, and also while I was working at the law firm, I, I supported myself while I was over there. And came back to the US because it's better to start a company here, frankly, than it is in Germany for many reasons, most of them being fiscal policies and laws. But I moved back to the United States and I had this idea about something that I thought was pretty big, which was of all those startups that I had participated in, you know, companies I had started and even the ones that were more technically oriented, I never really felt like this is changing the world. So it was sort of like a means to an end or it was something that I was, I was very passionate about. I'm a very passionate and obsessive person. But I really couldn't find that link between what I was doing and something that was to the level of Einstein or Newton. I just couldn't see it. And then I actually scheduled some time in my calendar one day because I was kind of depressed about that to drive around for a while. I just, for some reason, if I'm showering or driving, I think better. <laughs> and I couldn't take a three-hour shower. So I decided to drive around for a few hours and I just kind of used the voice recorder so I didn't wreck. So I took a voice recorder and I just thought about things and about different things I could do. And remember continually telling myself, think about like what everything else depends on. For example, if you want to get into the water business, bottled water, it's better to have the source of water itself than it is to have be the person selling the bottle in the store and better than being the bottle manufacturer. It's you know, the supplier of the water. So using that kind of logic, think down on technology, it's a rudimentary problem. And what popped my mind was that in law school and also with the law firm, we could find violations. My focus in law was intellectual property. It was the closest you can get in law to technology, right? So it was specifically international intellectual property. And we would you know, run these searches. We would find people violating logos and music videos and all this other fun stuff. Plagiarism was easy to catch. But as soon as it was patent-related, as if it was three-dimensional physical product, the only way that we knew someone was stealing something was there would be a patent lawsuit. You know, people would say, hey, there are Gucci bags being sold on the street that aren't real, and we're going to go sue the manufacturer. problem was growing, the cost of those lawsuits were expanding, and things like 3D printing and lower manufacturing costs were coming into play. Advanced manufacturing means it's sort of like a democratization in a sense. You don't have to make 10,000 copies of something to have a 
working prototype of an idea. So everybody could be copycatting other people's ideas. And the problem with that is it leads to less money being put into R&D, which means less innovation. So it's a very scary problem, both economically and also from a scientific perspective and a human developmental perspective. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could actually catch the theft of 3D models CAD models and such before they, these things went into production. So that was the catalyst for the idea behind FISNOW, Business for Physical DNA. And I found a partner to start it with. His name was Glenn Warner. He owned a 3D printing company out of Kentucky. Unfortunately, he passed away last year. But together, we built up this company from scratch. We tried everything on the market we could find. There were things called like you know, geometric search for CAD models, and 3D search, and all this other fun stuff. And we tried everything we put our hands on. And the results were pitiful. It was not really 3D search. It was not doing what it said. We were finding that they were very bad at finding even 100% duplicates of the same model. Everything could throw the results off. So it certainly wasn't going to work for the intention that I had. And we kind of threw up our hands in the air and said, well, I mean, unless we figure out a whole new way to do it, that's it. And the reason I gave that long back story wasn't so much, well, at least I hope it's not so much out of <laughs> ego being egocentric. It's more about like, I think that it actually kind of helps tie into why FISNA was able to work. Luckily, I didn't get a whole lot out of... I mean, I cannot remember all the equations and all the details of astrophysics. And I can barely remember some of the details about German law. But what I did get out of that was I was able to remember a couple of basic principles that were able to spark some innovation around how we could go about breaking down three-dimensional models in a way that would be agnostic to the file type and basically turn 3D data into software-legible code. In other words, codifying real things physical three-dimensional things and letting software think about it like that. So we wrote out a theory about how this would work. I took out a personally guaranteed loan in the company I was running at the time to keep that afloat. I didn't take a salary for three years. <laughs> I went from having no debt in my entire life to being taking out a lot of debt. And, and we also raised a little bit of friends and family money. And we hired a team of developers and took nine months for anything to work. But then finally, one day, we had some early results. And not long after that, we were able to not only show that we were finding similar models, we were finding models within models, finding models that were related to models, being able to tell if models were derived from models, seeing the slightest differences between them, even if the CAD viewer itself couldn't show the difference. It became really powerful. So we went to IMTS, which is a manufacturing trade show that happens every two years in Chicago. And we didn't have money for a booth. We just went there barely for the admission tickets and then the travel. And we just went around talking to people about it. And to my amazement, because I know that typically when you talk to people about a product you have, people barely listen to you and they certainly don't think about what you're telling them. But in this case, it was different. We told people at different booths what we were doing. And within 30 days, we had at least 20 different ideas or so about how to apply this, that none of which were from us. They were all from other people. They said, well, if you can actually understand how these models work, couldn't you automate quality control? Couldn't you automate inspection of cell towers? Couldn't you automate inspection of ships and buildings and parts and all this other fun stuff? And people also had a lot of ideas in the CAD space and in the engineering space. They said, well, you could help promote model reuse so people aren't redesigning, literally reinventing the wheel <laughs> and other parts. And in the supply chain and even in healthcare, we heard all these different theories about how we could, our software could be applied. And we went back to the drawing board and realized, wait a minute, actually, there's no reason why any one of these would not work. We were trying kind of to disprove that they would that, that would make sense. So it became more of an economic question than a technical one. And we kind of started experimenting with different types of applications built on this core technology that we had developed. And things like plagiarism prevention for mechanical engineering, cell phone tower inspection for cell towers and the, their antennas, quality control automation for manufacturing, 
we've looked into a lot of different applications of this technology. We really eventually settled on, let's start in the beginning with the engineering process and take it through the supply chain and let's initially not rely on 3D scans. Now we're able to rely on 3D scans, but at the time we found it frustrating because before our technology was where it is now, it was difficult for us to determine differences between models when you have varying scans of varying quality from different 3D scanners. We've since overcome a lot of that. Anyway, that's kind of how we got started. That's my backstory and also a little bit of the backstory of FISNA. I hope that wasn't too long. <laughs> got it. So typically what I like to do is take a hard left and learn a little bit more about you. What's your favorite thing to do? I honestly get the most satisfaction in the world out of doing things in the company. I have hobbies or things I like to do. I like leather work, for example. I think it's fun. It's relaxing. I like scuba diving. I like, I don't fly planes really anymore, but I used to quite a bit. I enjoyed that. But what I really get satisfaction out of is feeling like I made progress. It's a different type of satisfaction. You might get a temporary thrill out of watching a movie or going out and doing something fun, but you get this really strong feeling of contentment and self-fulfillment when you actually hit goals and make strides in your mission. So what I like to do is I think I'm probably the happiest with a dry erase marker on a whiteboard, working through problems and talking about how we can apply this technology. I know that that can sound a little bit made up, but that, I swear to God, that's, I think, what I'm happiest. No, I would say out of 10 entrepreneurs I asked that question to, about 10 of them say working is <laughs> their favorite <laughs> thing to do. So what inspires you? Feeling of obligation on one hand and I guess I'd be lying if I didn't say there was probably some degree of egocentric vanity almost. And I want to, my life specifically to mean something. I want to have contributed something. I want to be known for that. But I also, on the other flip side of that, I feel a very strong obligation to not let my very small and significant, unlikely life that I have here to just go to the wayside and not matter. The reason that I'm still alive at the age of 31 and I don't have any limbs missing and I don't have to go out and throw a spear at an animal anytime soon just to eat is because people before me, my ancestors, your ancestors, our ancestors, they made progress by being those few individuals who really contributed to human progress. And that's what makes our lives so great today. So what inspired me was, I guess, a combination of this internal drive and this feeling of internal obligation to leave behind the biggest impact that I possibly can. And when it comes to where I think humanity's next steps are, I think it really has a lot to do with the merging and unification, if you will, of the digital and the physical worlds. And that's why I feel a very strong mission to focus on that. Got it. Now, you might disagree, Paul, but I think that inspiration and motivation are quite different. What motivates you? I'm motivated by what inspires me. So in that sense, maybe it's a cause and effect relationship, right? They're different, but they're also essentially interconnected. At least I feel like that. On a daily basis, I can be motivated by small things. It's motivating to me and inspiring, I guess. If I see that one of my employees is working above and beyond and really has their heart in something, it's motivating to me and inspiring to me if I hear somebody else talk about why they're excited about the same mission that I am and the same vision that I am. Anything that reinforces your mindset, of course, to me as a human, and I'd be lying if I said otherwise, is inspiring and motivating. But I really do think that my life goal, my vision for what my life's purpose is, even on a daily basis, I think is what gets me up in the morning, makes me motivated to work. And I'm more excited about achieving success than I am afraid of failure. What I'm afraid of more than anything, though, is stagnation and mediocrity not trying, not doing my best, and achieving results that are rolling okay and not really making an impact. 
So what was a butterfly moment in your life? And what I mean by that was a moment when you went from being in a cocoon to being a beautiful butterfly. I don't know if I'm a beautiful butterfly or not, but <laughs> it's not one. I think it's a series of things that transform a person. There's a butterfly moment in every day of our lives. I can look back though and retroactively, at the time, maybe none of these felt like butterfly moments, but I can definitely look back and think of a few. One was to look at a meteor shower and that really inspired me to both think about the world more broadly and to get into astronomy, which led to some of the interests that I had later and which led to FISNA actually working out. Another butterfly moment I had was the realization while I was at Harvard that if you wanted to make any progress, it couldn't just be through science. It had to be through more than that. You can either be a foot soldier or you can be a general. And one thing that I noticed very early on in my life, when I was like six, seriously, about six years old or something, I took great pleasure in organizing like clubs and having like dues and stuff like that. I felt a lot like the brain and pinking the brain. I felt like when I was like six years old, I was always thinking about like, how can I take over the world? I had this very strong ambition at a very early age. And I think that realizing that if I wanted to make a really big impact, I had to do more than be a scientist. Not saying the scientists don't make impact. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying that if you're trying to totally change things from a fundamental perspective, it's just more difficult right now. And I'm sure that someone is going to totally achieve that in the near future and totally disprove what I've just said. But at least for me, I felt like I had to go into business. I think like that was my calling. Realizing that you needed grants and science, and that it was a little bit different than I had imagined it at the time. That was another butterfly moment for me. And then definitely that moment when I was driving around in the car and finally had the epiphany of what became FISNA. That was absolutely a butterfly moment. That's funny because when you talk about perspective, I call it the economy of the human existence, right? It's knowing that there is never going to be another you. There's never been you and there never will be another you. But at the same time, you're just like everybody else. And I think having that perspective is a game changer because you realize that as significant as you are, everyone else is as significant. And I think when you look at life that way, it really changes the way you do business. It changes the way you live your life. And it's a really cool thing, I think, because you're going to treat people different when you understand that Paul is just as important as I am. But he's not more important than I am. And I think it gives a really good baseline of how to make the world better. Absolutely. It gives you a feeling of, look, I'm not going to be able to change the fact that we are on a little piece of rock out in the middle of nowhere in space. And I'm only one out of seven point something billion people in the world and one of well over 100 billion people who've been on the world. But I can change the impact that I leave and make sure that I'm one of the people who's making as big of a contribution as I can. So it's both the sense of a moral obligation and a sense of, hey, I don't like the thought of being completely insignificant. I want to be as significant as I possibly can be with the talents and opportunities that I have and as much hard work as I can give to it. Now you're successful, Paul. What are your top one or two keys to success? Thinking in the right direction, which is backwards for most people. So there's a few biases that the human brain has. And I think overcoming those is extremely important. That's why I've joked around with people in the past kind of half seriously saying, technically, I think if you have a brain defect, a certain type of brain defect, you probably have an advantage as an entrepreneur because our brains are wired not to be entrepreneurs. We're wired for survival, not for thrival, essentially. We're wired for linear thinking, not exponential thinking. And we're wired to think from now forward, not from the future back. All of those things work against you if you're an entrepreneur. To be a successful entrepreneur, you need to do three things. You need to realize what fear is and overcome it. And you need to 
let your ambition overcome your doubts and start to view doubt as an enemy. And it is. You're not going to die because your company failed. But if you don't start that company, you'll never have a successful company. So that's something we have to overcome. But we're programmed to think about, you know, saber-toothed tigers and short-faced bears and stuff like that. We need to <laughs> take a step back and realize we have this existential fear in us. It's very much a, a fight-or-flight reaction, and it's not helpful nowadays. It's not helpful to have that mentality because it's not an accurate portrayal of the world around us. That's one thing. The second thing is thinking exponentially versus thinking linearly, realizing that you might look at someone who has a billion dollars and say, oh my gosh, I have whatever in the bank. And that's X thousand times more or whatever than I have. So I'm going to have to work X thousand times more hard or more hours. Or people think of these numbers as being impossible. And they think of odds as being fixed. Someone told me the other day, they said, hey, that's so great that you guys got VC funding because I read that only one in 2,000 startups gets VC funded. So that, that's both true and it's wrong. One in 2,000, maybe one in 2,000 startups gets VC funding, but probably only a handful of those 2,000 startups were actually eligible really for three VC funding or actually pushed hard and did the right things for VC funding. So there's an impact that you can have that'll change things. And there are certain motions you can put in place that will lead to exponential growth and whatever it is is that you're focused on in income and active users for your platform, etc. And also in your odds of being successful. So that's another bias that we have. And the third one, I think, is... I don't want to say it's worse than the other two. I think fear is probably the worst. This is probably the second worst thought that people have. Is And this is something we have to change, not only individually, but as a society. We're training everybody to think in terms of planning for today, then tomorrow, then the week, then the month, then the year. And that's a great way to never do anything wonderful because there's not a path to be a clear-cut, super easy path. And if anyone tells you they have it, they're lying. There's not a really simple step-by-step program with no exceptions, no extra work, no unique circumstances, to nothing to being a multi-billionaire. That doesn't exist, right? There are principles, sure. There are definitely uh, strategies as well. Most of it's a mindset thing, but there's not a path you can look forward from. What do I have to study? Well, you have to study this and you have to go to this school and you have to go get this job. And then you have to start this exact... No, it doesn't exist. But there are paths like that for everybody else. So people think like, oh, well, if I want to go into business, they don't think about it. They think, I feel like I like business. I'm going to go to business school. They think, I kind of like this area of technology. I'm going to go work at this company. I kind of like doing this. I'm going to go do this. So thinking forward. And to be successful, you have to reverse it because you don't do that when you drive a car. Right? This is the best analogy I can give. You don't say, that street looks kind of nice. I'm going to drive my car down that street. Ooh, that street looks kind of nice. I'm going to drive my car down that street. You're never going to get anywhere that way. You're going to end up God knows where. You don't do that. You start when the time that you get in your car, you know exactly where you're going. And with GPS or just your own sense directions or whatever, you might not know how you're going to get there, but you know where you're going. And if there's a roadblock, if there's a stop sign, if, if there's traffic jam, whatever, you just figure out how to get there. You don't say, well, I'm, oh, wow, there's a detour here on this road. I guess I'm not going to that store anymore. No, you reroute yourself. We do a better job thinking about how to go to the grocery store than we do about how to be successful with our lives. And that's what drives me nuts. Got it. Well, all right. I don't want to hold you anymore. I appreciate your time. And like I said, I'll let you know when this goes live and it won't be a year. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. <laughs> appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Thanks again, Paul. Take care. Enterprisers, if you got value from that awesome conversation, let the world know by subscribing to the email list and leaving a review on your favorite podcast app. That helps us know that we're bringing you golden nugget field conversations with the most inspirational business owners. Reach out at podcast at enterprisenow.net with any feedback or questions for me or any of my guests. 
Thanks again, folks, and we'll talk with you guys next time. What a fantastic episode. Hey, listen, I want to know something. What is the top concern that you have in your business? Is it sales? Is it marketing? Is it finance? Operations? Shoot me an email, mayor at podcasttown.net. I want to start a conversation around these areas of business and how we can work together and help each other shine even brighter.